0: Welcome to the Bragworthy Culture Podcast, where leaders share how they've created a company so incredible their employees have to tell their friends about it. And now, here's your host, Jordan Peace. Welcome back to Bragworthy Culture. This is your host, Jordan Peace, and today we're chatting with Dr. Alex Kapood. Alex is an internal communications consultant for Scarlet Abbott in, in York, which is in the UK, if you don't know. Alex is a PhD in philosophy with a concentration in social anthropology in particular. I'm really interested to talk about that. So it's not a huge surprise that Alex is with an employee engagement consultancy like Scarlett Abbott. Alex, there's more I'd like to say about you and your background, but first, let me just say welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Jordan. It's really, really just a a treat and a joy and a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to this.
0: Me too. Uh, We're really excited to have you. So, I want to read one quick passage from your bio. It says As an anthropologist, Alex's real passion is understanding the real life experiences of employees across an organization and how employers can create better worlds of work that people find meaningful and rewarding. It's not just about saying the right things, but also creating the culture and environment in organizations that help people thrive. So, Focusing on that thriving. And I have I have a few questions about that. One more thing though, Alex, if you'll humor me, I found on your LinkedIn profile a little fun fact you probably don't even remember is on there. You were once a proud member of the Scottish Dance Society back in the University of Aberdeen. He's laughing if you can't see the video. University of Aberdeen, which was between when you were at Oxford and then Edinburgh. So I'm fascinated to know how and where you picked up an interest in Scottish dance.
1: Hey, wow. Yeah, that, that's a throwback. Yeah, so I, I spent a lot of time in Scotland. If you look on my LinkedIn, I did all of my grad school there, two master's degrees and a PhD at Aberdeen and Edinburgh, as, as you said, Jordan. And yeah, one of the things I did on the side was Scottish country dance. So this is something that I was in a wedding in the Isle of Lois, like these, these small rural islands 40 miles off the northwest coast of Scotland, and got invited to a wedding you know that's his own story but right we're there for a wedding and basically every wedding in scotland they have what's called a kaylee hmm. it looks like ceilidh if you spell it out like grammatically with english but yeah they've got these kaylees and they're just like the most fun thing ever everyone in scotland learns how to do them from like the time they're you know five years old it's something they yeah. do in gym class like i guess I, I grew up in atlanta i think we did a little bit of like square dancing and pe everyone, everyone thought wow this is really, really lame. Right. But and I think a lot of people in Scotland think the Cayley is lame until like they grew up, go to weddings, and it's just a lot of fun. Mm. So basically, I found out that, you know, one of the clubs at these universities was basically a Cayley club. Mm. And they would go around the country, they'd compete with different universities. I never competed. I wasn't that good. But I do <laughs> enjoy it. You know, if you ever go to Edinburgh as a tourist on a Friday night, there's a club called the, the Gilly Doo on the West End and they do a public Kaylee. it's just a good time. And they teach you all the steps and everything. But yeah, so I thought, yeah, it's, it's one of my niche skills.
0: Right, I've got a lot yeah. of stories to tell. <laughs> so. That's so cool. I just thought we'd dip into your own kind of personal history a little bit as we get in. So obviously, with your backdrop as a cultural anthropologist, you're thinking, well, actually, I don't want to tell the listeners what That means. I'd rather you tell us about what that means, and then I'll get into a question from the perspective of cultural anthropology. But why don't you tell us a little bit about what it means to be a cultural anthropologist?
1: Yeah, I I think this is the number one question I always get at, at work with people who aren't familiar with anthropology or clients. Right. I remember when I did my my master's in anthropology at Edinburgh, I had this Greek program director. He's like, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years, and you're gonna ask me what is the anthropology? And he said, here's what I'll tell you. He's like, I don't know. (laughs) I was like, like, holy crap, we're paying 30 grand to be told I don't know by this guy who's been doing this for 30 years. You know, I do know. I do have some thoughts and ideas. If you look at the word itself, it's the study of humanity. It's a study of people. Right. And one of the nice things about this is it's so broad that, you know, we, we look at the question kind of, you know, if you want to think of a top umbrella question that anthropologists explore... What does it mean to be human? You know, and there are literally a million different ways that you could answer that. You know, so you could think about the food we eat. So there's an anthropology of food. Um, There's an anthropology literally of everything. There's an anthropology of work, which I've gotten into. My PhD was actually in the anthropology of history and how people think about history and the historical narratives and stories we tell ourselves. Uh, Again, I'm from Atlanta. I'm Filipino-American. I've lived in the UK. And I, I remember coming to the UK and thinking, Gosh, the way they talk about colonialism and the British Empire, is a, it's a bit strange. Mm. And I basically stumbled into that, turned it into a PhD project, um, decided it was time for the next challenge. And, and now I'm going to look at the anthropology of work and, and what does it mean to work? Why do we work? What does that mean for different people? You know, the hows, the what is work? I mean, I talk with a lot of clients and I'll say, you know, work is, it's what you do. I think we've seen with the pandemic... Uh, and the shift to flexible and remote and hybrid work, it's not just where you do it as well, you know, the office, the factory, the store, whatever. But I always tell people it's also who you do it with. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that social side of things. Right. So if anthropology is kind of the study of what it means to be human, the cultural social side, it looks at the ways that people interact together, right? right? The social side, it's kind of obvious. It's not just, we don't just exist in a vacuum. Right. You and I were, 5,000 miles away right now, but we're speaking the same language yep. and how we would learn that language and these ways to communicate all these things. Like, actually it's the how and the why hmm. of the day-to-day things that we do that honestly we often take for granted, never think twice about, you know, maybe some of your listeners, you're thinking, can you think about what is work? Well, duh, it's obvious. It's what you do. <laughs> well, act- actually it's not, you know, what do you do? Why do you do it the way you do it? Right. If you come into a meeting room, for example, and you've never been in a meeting room before and people have all these weird rituals and talk in turns and never come to any decisions or whatever, it's kind of weird. Right. And right. and anthropologists, when we do our field work, we tend to just actually go into a place kind of as, as a child would or yeah. another analogy we like to say as a Martian would. And what would a Martian see? If they've never seen your workplace, your office. If they never listened to a podcast, like right. What are these guys talking about? Right. You
0: know? <laughs> yeah, no that's fascinating. I don't there was a I don't know if it was a poem or something I read one time about the perspective of a Martian kind of looking down on humans and like what, you know, what is what going on? And the perspective was that we all are servants of our pets that like the dogs were in charge and we walk around cleaning up their mess and feeding them. (laughs) And and we were clearly servants of these animals um, from their perspective. So one relationship that I wanna explore in that vein is the relationship between employer and employee. Um, Even with my untrained eye, I can see a dramatic difference in the workplace between those two parties from say my parents' generation to my own. Right. But I wanted to get your perspective on kind of breaking down what's gone on and how all of this over the past, you know, you could go back 30 years or you could just go back a couple of years and kind of have, you know, the pandemic be the focus of that answer, if you wish. But how does all that change What's happening there and then maybe connecting that to some of the hot topics, right? The hybrid mental health and so forth.
1: Yeah, I think you know it's it's definitely something that I think is on the forefront of a lot of people's minds because we're seeing that first of all, I don't think that work and the employer-employee relationship was ever really just about you do this work and we pay you a wage. You know, mm. I know I'm not doing economics justice, I've got a, a close family member who's an economist in DC. Yeah, okay. but but you know. Economists have tended to abstract that and say, it's about, I'm the employer, I own the factory or the office or whatever, and you work 40 hours a week for me, and I'll pay you effectively, you know, X dollars, X pounds, X euros per hour, and, right. and you know, with salaries, etc. And maybe at one level, it was like that, again, factory work, maybe 50, 60 years ago, you know, right. But obviously, with the rise of salaried employees, that's definitely changed. Yeah. I think one thing that we're seeing is that, you know, it's, again, I don't know if it ever was just that simple, but it obviously isn't now, right? Mm-hmm. That that this relationship, I think, first of all, you know, let's zoom out the camera as, as you and I were talking earlier, Jordan, the anthropologists tend to zoom the camera way out. And then we can tend to zoom it way in for a close up of what is that actually like, and we zoom it out, and then it's dizzying sometimes. But I, <laughs> I think, <laughs> you know, we're seeing that Yeah, we need to think, what is this relationship in the first place? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a relationship that, you know, you might have with your boss and that they might have with their boss. There's these individual social relationships, but there is also, whether we think of it that way or not, there is that relationship with the company and the individual, you know? I'm an employee of Scarlett Abbott here in the UK, in York, and I have a relationship with that brand, with that collective, with that Mm -hmm. group. You know, I know you talk a lot about culture in this podcast, and so it is yes. that collective aspect of, I have a relationship with that collective. Okay, there might be one person, two people, in my case, at the top of that, right. but, you know, there's still this, what's my relationship with the collective? And we need to recognize that's real. You know, it's not just, yeah, it's not just something that's in our heads to think, mm-hmm. oh, it's it's me and this company that kind of just exists on paper. It also exists right. in our interactions and, you know, the name on my paycheck and all of that. But yeah. but we do have these relationships and we need to recognize that. But it's also, we need to recognize, yeah, what, what's the nature of that? Right. Anthropologically, we might ask, where does the power lie? Who has it? Do I, as an employee, have any power or agency, as, as we might say, theoretically, or do my directors have all of that? Right. What control do I have over my own circumstance, my own work, et cetera? Again, th- those are parts of this relationship. Right. And I think when we look at it that way, we can say that actually there's something going on here because again, it might be a, a straw man to say, actually, the bosses had all the power. We're seeing actually, especially when we talk about the great resignation or things like this, you know, these right. big buzzwords, actually, maybe the employers don't have all the power and actually the employees do have a lot more power. And yeah. and again, I think this is an age old question, really, when we think about unions um, state to state, country to country. I know certainly probably in the 21st century, they're they're more in decline than ever before. I'm not pro-union or anti-union. It's just, right. you know, they've been able to kind of collectivize that employee bargaining power. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, you know, to what extent, A, is that fractures that it's individualized? I think that's, that's very true. You know, I need to find my own job and make my own way and argue for my own raise and all that. But I think there's also changing expectations. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what you're talking about in terms of mental health, or even just the origins of of a lot of benefits, the basic stuff, pensions, 401ks, and health insurance, all of that. There's kind of this change of actually, it's not just about, yeah, you pay me, I do work. Right. It's also, there's other stuff that goes along with that.
0: I want to drill into that because I think that's a really interesting Topic and any employer listening, and I think employees as well would be interested to know where is this coming from. Like the change of expectation, is it generational? Mm-hmm. Is it as a result of the technology available to us, and therefore we have more options, right? More options to work, more options of where to work, or how to work, or what hours to work, right? One of the things I'm curious to ask you about too, and maybe I'll, I'll wait on this, but I've always theorized that it's a bit about identity. That more than ever, employees, part of their identity is who they work for, and that's meaningful to them. The mission and the vision and the values of that company is part of what's defining, in some way, who they are, right? And therefore, they're willing to maybe take less money or be a little, you know, not quite promoted quite as quickly or whatever, for the sake of being in the right place that feels like the right place and and which could also be generational. I'm just curious where this change of expectations coming from.
1: I mean, you're definitely putting in some big trends there because I think there is something to be said about this being generational. So about 11 years ago, I was working in a nonprofit in Atlanta and and we were a nonprofit that kind of worked with overseas partners in charity work. Mm -hmm. And so one of my jobs was to kind of contact people who are interested in working with this organization. I made this really interesting observation, probably about, you know, a couple weeks into this job, where you would ask someone, you know, who is Jordan Peace, right? And if you were someone probably a bit younger, you know, just fresh out of college, or in your 20s and looking for something exciting, you might say, especially, you know, this is in 2010, so after the economy took a bit of a nosedive, you know, I might say, who's Jordan Peace? And they'd be like, I'm so glad you didn't ask me what I do, Right. (sighs) Because someone would say, oh, I'm a barista, you know, but my real passion is art and, right. and trying to make it as an artist. Mm. Or, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a grad student. I'm, I'm thinking about this, this, and this. Or, and it was interesting how young people would talk about their passions and what they're interested in. And older right. people, like, especially a lot of retirees who wanted to do some of this charity work after they'd made their money. They'd mm-hmm. be like, oh, yeah, well, I'm a banker or, you know, I work in right. IT. They would always answer that question with what they did for right. a living, They're whereas role, younger people wouldn't. yeah yeah and it was such an interesting yeah. thing because yeah I stopped asking people what do you do but but rather who are you and it was like giving someone a paintbrush and saying paint a picture of yourself or something right. that matters to you I'm giving you the paintbrush and it was always so interesting to watch that first stroke of the of the brush what mm-hmm. would they paint with it now that you gave them the brush and again to me that that's kind of where a lot of this started is I've seen actually there's a generational difference in priorities. There's obviously some faults with the terms millennials or gen z or whatever. But it, you know, there are trends I think of people who actually m- myself included, you know, we saw our parents work for a paycheck, come home, not want to talk about work. One of my parents is actually a workaholic. Mm-hmm. Another one of them, like, he got home from work and dad didn't want to talk about work until he had to be back, you know? Oh. And, you know, they both did really, really well Yeah. financially. My parents lived the American dream. But at the same time, like, it was, it was interesting to think about, yeah, what was I willing to put up with? What did I want to do, mm-hmm. right? Did I want to be like my mother where I was obsessed with my work, couldn't put it down, where I was so driven by it? Or did I want to be a bit more like my dad who was really good at his job and more targeting his there, but it wasn't his whole life and he didn't right. want it to be. Right. And, and I guess for me, seeing those two examples of here's my mother who her life, her identity is as a food microbiologist and as a mother. And mm-hmm. my dad was, you know, he had all these different interests and hobbies and other things he wanted to do. Yeah. And it's interesting when you think about it that way, that you're right. There's something to be said about identity I think, in general, we want. I still call myself young, by the way. But
0: yeah. <laughs> we, uh, I'm with you. I think we're about the same age, Alex. I'm with you, man. Still hanging on. Yeah. You want to
1: tie into some sort of purpose? Like, what's the meaning of life? You know, and yeah. again, you can talk about all these bigger social trends of the decline of religion or kind of this hyper individualism that we see with a lot of social media, right? Maybe that's another chat for another day. Ah,
0: uh, yeah, that's a whole. The, that's that's a series. I think <laughs> things
1: things are very kind of personalized. You know, even when yes. you think about personalized, customized experiences in mm-hmm. our our software journeys, for example, mm-hmm. we see that. And obviously, it's a b- bigger social trend that's trickling into the workplace. Right. I right? was I was reading something by a top consultancy the other day, just you know, seeing what other people are writing. And it, right. yeah, it's very much about personalizing the work journey. Yes. And again, that's when you read that, you're like, actually, that's just another form of individualizing. Mm-hmm. Which, again, it has its ups and downs. I'm not saying it's all bad. Yeah. it's good to to be able to understand and recognize individual needs. Right. But we, again, we need to zoom out the camera and kind of say, well, where does that fracturing actually lead us to? Right. right. Are we actually kind of maybe more disconnected from each other? It's like when you mm-hmm. walk into a cafe and you see four people on their phones together, not yeah. saying a word. They might be texting each other. It might be on the group chat, but they also might not be. And they're kind of checked out and detached, even though they're in the same place.
0: Yeah. I was in a little local grocery store recently and they had some, I don't remember if it was plates or napkins or something with, you know, image and text on it. And it said, Hey, what are you doing later? I'm going to have seven people over. We're all going to stare at our phones, (laughs) 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 making plans to not communicate. So, yeah, I, I think, gosh, I mean, there's so much on this topic of the employer employee relationship. And I and I'm happy to be able to dig in a little bit to these issues of identity. Expectations. I think expectations sounds like that that's huge. Individualizing, personalizing all of that. I mean, that's something that I've been saying personally for the last, you know, several years. It's just, you know, right or wrong, right? The pros and cons here, we're right or wrong, millennials and younger are growing up walking into Starbucks and using a 20-word description to get the perfect drink. And then they go to work and you say, hey, do you want chocolate, vanilla, or strawberry? And it's like, hey, hey, catch up, workplace. Because the marketplace is way out here, right? So really interesting stuff. We are shockingly almost at half an hour. So let me ask you one more question and then I'm obviously gonna have to have you come back because there's just a lot to dig into. And when you do what you're doing, when you zoom out and then you zoom in, you can't have a, a short little buzzword filled conversation. It's There's it too much depth, right? And that's a good thing, I love it. So I, I wanted to ask you just one more thing around mental health for the sake of our listeners that are employees and just dealing with their own lives and circumstances and their own mental health, but also for employers and trying to understand how the employer can kind of help. So, let me put it this way. We're seeing a lot in the workplace pop culture, the Olympics with mm-hmm. Simone Biles for example, we're seeing a lot of kind of mental health awareness, right? Certainly on the rise. And it's easy I could sit here and say something sensational like, "Oh, there's no stigma anymore." And that might sound good and 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 we could, you know, we could put that on a gif or something. But Culturally speaking, and, and maybe just keeping this to the West for now, mm-hmm. since that's the majority of the listenership, how much progress have we really made on helping employees feel comfortable revealing their need for help? Like, what more do we need to do to create a culture where, I think, as Michael Phelps put it the other day, it's okay not to be okay?
1: Hmm. Man, that's a deep question.
0: Yeah.
1: I think, I, I mean, there's so many roots that. that we could explore this from. I think one is that this is one of the biggest differences I've noticed between the UK and the US. Hmm. I think in the U S we're much more open about it. We're much more open about feelings. Yeah. Watching an Olympian breakdown and cry tears of joy. It's like, well, in America, we totally relate to that. Right. I don't want to offend any English listeners or British listeners. (laughs) I know from my friends that they get a little awkward about that. Those outbursts of emotion. Like, you know, very Victorian. You got to hold it in, you know, my partner, she says, you know, I've got to hold my emotions in all the time. That's how I was, that's how I was raised. And you know, it's, it's one of those things where I'm happy to say, I I do think there's progress. Uh, I think there's progress, you know, both sides of the Atlantic. I think we're more open to talking about it. I'm afraid sometimes just shooting from the hip here. I'm afraid that sometimes we might perform that conversation you know, in like a performative sense of mm-hmm. we're you know, where we want to be seen right. and we want to be seen to have it be having the right conversations as opposed to people having that sense of, and here's another topic for another day, psychological safety. Yes. To put their hand up and say, actually, I'm really struggling here. Hmm. You know, my advice to employers is explore what psychological safety means in your context mm. and provide people with that. Make sure that there's no sort of penalty at all for, actually saying, you know, I'm struggling, or I've got anxiety, I've got depression. I think right. leaders play such a massive role in this. I cannot state that enough. If leaders are vulnerable with their people and say, actually, right. hey, I had to take a day off for this too. Right. I know what that feels like. I, and having that empathy, A, to lead and make decisions about right. your people, but also to actually show your people exactly like Michael Phelps or Simone Miles, showing people it's okay to put your hand up and say, actually, I'm not feeling that great today. I can't do this. I need right. a day out. And, and and I think one of the things that's interesting is, and, and linking this to psychological safety is, and kind of back to the anthropological thing, there's a sense of social debt. There's a lot of companies where people might say, actually, I need to take a day off, but I don't feel like I can, because actually if I'm taking a day off and no one else is, right. I feel bad because someone's got to pick up my work. Right. Thinking how that plays into it and how actually if you're struggling with guilt and feeling guilty about being overwhelmed, actually taking a day out and handing the reins over to your colleagues actually can only, you know, it might exacerbate that. Again, we can create the mechanisms and tools, but we also need to create those environments and cultures, as as we said at the top, where people feel, actually, my team's got me. Right, You know, actually, we're a team. We have this relationship, not just employee and group and employer, but as teams, as individuals to say, actually, we look out for each other. Hmm. You know, when I was thinking about your podcast, I, I think, you know, the number one thing I'd say is, is actually maybe it just really comes down to looking out for people. I mean, that's so cheesy to say as an anthropologist. Like, <laughs> you know, there, there's not a simple buzzword but actually maybe there is maybe it means yeah. just look out for people yeah take care of your people right because actually if you take care of them they'll take care of you yeah i do believe there's a lot of truth to that that you know we know that engaged happy satisfied well paid not overworked employees do great work yeah and 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 i think it's just it's as simple as taking care of people you know don't don't just give people an app and say and this is another thing about kind of the passing on the responsibility and, and individualizing. Don't just get people on an app and say, use this app. It's going to be fine. Well, actually, if the problem is you're having three people do the work of eight people, mm-hmm. that's the problem. Right. the problem. The problem isn't that people are struggling to cope with that workload. The problem is you don't have the right resource for the workload. When you think about the structure, the structure of your workplace, the structure of where that power is, what you're sharing, you know, what you're focusing on, yeah, I feel like we could go on on that. I'll probably just leave that one there for now.
0: On and on and on, absolutely. Gosh, this is fun. I need to plan some other time to get back together with you and and dig even deeper on some of these topics because there's a lot I didn't even ask you <laughs> yet. So, so we'll have to get back to it. But I, you know, I think this is the heart behind the podcast. Like th- this is why I started the podcast to help people. Not just think how do I placate my employees, how do I check all the boxes, get them all the right apps, and but to actually mean what they say about their people being their greatest resource and pour into them and prove ultimately that when you invest in your people, your business will thrive, right? And it's the exact opposite of that age old adage of like, you know, when the money's Flowing, everybody's happy, right? Like I was told that a few jobs ago. It's just like, hey, when everybody's making money, all these social things will go away, you know. And it's like that—that couldn't be further from the truth. They might get stuffed down or or buried in some sort of excitement over, you know, the thriving financially, but
1: but at what cost, right?
0: At what cost? That's right. At what? What people cost, right? Mm. So I really appreciate it. It's just right in line with what I love to talk about and think about. So I'm going to have to cut us both off because otherwise, you know, our, our listeners will be why Why is this episode twice as long as all your other ones? But I want to have you back, Alex, because I want to get into deeper into a few of these topics, especially around you know those expectations and how we create. I think you hit the nail on the head. An environment of psychological and kind of sociological safety. That's huge. That's huge. And as we're waffling between working from home, and then we're going to open the office, and then the Delta variant's coming out, and now everybody's thinking about going the other direction, and we're just getting kind of jerked around, you know, emotionally and otherwise. And that psychological safety is probably all the more important than it ever has been in the workplace. So, excited about that. Thanks, Alex. Any, any last thing you want to share that, you know, just any place that you didn't get to finish your thought?
1: No, I mean, again, I feel like we could talk for ages. I feel like, you know, just kind of finding kindred spirits almost in terms of discussion partners and topics to explore. Now, again, I think it really just comes down to remembering what it is to be human, to look after people, you know, and, and, and to especially think about people's experiences. You know, as an employer, as a boss, as a leader, think about what is it actually like for your people to work here hmm. in this place with you? Hopefully, the answer is it's, it's something great. Right. Because you look after them, you know, there's a sense of mutual trust and respect and right. recognition. But again, these are things I hope to explore with you another time, Jordan.
0: Absolutely. Well, thanks everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Alex Kapood today. I really do mean it. I think we want to have him back and in your future, plenty more to discuss. And if you want to reach out, he's he's got a very lovely LinkedIn profile. He'll tell you all about his Scottish dance experience and more importantly, his study in cultural and social anthropology where I think we all have a lot to learn here and it's very, very relevant. If you are a people leader, a CEO, a CHRO, any of those roles where you're thinking about how do we care for and support our people, I think Alex could be a great resource to us all. So feel free to reach out to him and we will see you next week on Bragworthy Culture. Bye-bye.